loud. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive of the City Club and a proud member. Today's April 29th. It's been seven weeks since Ohio's stay-at-home order was first issued. In recent weeks, conversation, public conversation, has shifted from the immediate information about the COVID-19 pandemic and the response to the and, and the response to the disproportionate impact the pandemic is having on African Americans throughout the country and here in Ohio and in Cleveland. That disparity mirrors the racial, economic, and health disparities that frankly have persisted for decades and centuries. Crisis like this does bring urgency and opportunity, and some leaders are pledging to address the long, long-standing inequalities and inequities, and today we're going to talk with one of them, Cleveland City Council President Kevin Kelly. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. You can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet them at the City Club if you're on Twitter. We will work them into the second half of the program. And before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to thank our generous members and sponsors and donors who support these virtual forums. For a full list, please visit us online at cityclub.org slash thank you, and you can join them in supporting our work by making a contribution online at cityclub.org slash donate or consider becoming a member of the City Club, cityclub.org slash members. Now to our speaker, Council President Kevin Kelly was first elected in 2005 and continues to represent Ward 13, which includes Old Brooklyn and parts of the Stockyard neighborhood. He was unanimously chosen to continue on as Council President. Prior to holding public office, Council President Kelly was a member of the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, helping people afflicted with poverty and mental illness, and he later worked at Recovery Resources, assisting mentally ill adults. He's an attorney as well of counsel at uh, Porter Wright Morrison Arthur LLP, and he seems to be joining us from those offices there, where the Wi-Fi is probably more, somewhat more dependable, but there are certainly fewer distractions. Council President Kevin Kelly, welcome to the City Club. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate your uh, having me on, and it's always an honor to be at the City Club, even if it's under these circumstances. <laughs> it's a it's a delight to have you with us, and these circumstances are pretty extraordinary. I know they have um, required uh, really different kinds of leadership from everybody in City Hall and everybody in healthcare. I know that your wife is uh, part of the front line uh, in the healthcare sure. force as a nurse, and we thank her and we thank you for supporting her in that work, uh, Council President Kelly. What let's get right into this. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has revealed um, some stark realities that we have uh, that we've been facing for a very long time, but they are in stark relief right now. What are you seeing that you want to address? Well, what I would like to address, Dan, is that this crisis has shined a very bright light on what we do well and what our greatest challenges are. And we need to use this opportunity to, to move forward, to address those crises. Um, I look at what's happening now. As you mentioned, much of the first phase of this was dealing with the virus itself, with the crisis, with, the, with um, how do we as a community and a society react to this. Um, we've, we're now moving into the reopening phase, uh, which, which the governor announced, and there's gonna be a different set of reopenings. But, I don't think it's too early to start planning long-term on what a real economic recovery will look like. And we have to start now and forecast where do we want to be, not just in the summer of 2020, but where do we want to be in 2025 and beyond? Um, I think that the we have to start with what we did well. 
And there were plenty of things that, that we did great and really showed the greatness of this community. Um, and I want to start with, of course, you know, the, the people, the people of, of this community shine. They really showed that we, we care for one another. Um, we were innovative. We reached out, whether it's delivering meals, whether it was making masks for people, um, we, we showed that we as a people are great people. Our frontline health workers, as you mentioned, um, my wife is a nurse and interestingly, she was raising our kids for a long time and uh, just went back to school to get her degree, not knowing this would happen. And, you know, she's uh, less than a year in and then this, this crisis hit. But what I've seen through what, what she's done um, you know, other than the, the, just the selflessness of the healthcare community is they've had to be resilient. They've had to adapt to new orders, new conditions that change on a daily basis. And in a lot of ways we all did. And I think it's just, we can't spend enough time thanking the front frontline healthcare workers, our first responders, the grocery store workers, the post office, the truck drivers, these people risk their lives so that we could be safe. Um, and we owe, we owe a debt of gratitude. So I, I really want to just point out the greatness of, of the people and how we really shined. We do have a wonderful community citizens that have really banded together in many ways. And we've seen that really across the across greater Cleveland, across the state of Ohio. And we're fortunate to have had the leadership in local public health officials, local government officials and statewide public health and government officials as well. Council President Kelly, we only have an hour with you, so let's jump. Let's jump into um, to the the seriousness of this. Sure. If we are to create an economy that is truly inclusive and truly creates access to opportunity for all Clevelanders, what are the first things we need to do? The first thing we need to do is stop looking past the digital divide that we have in our community. Um, we talked about this. This has been part of the conversation for well over a decade prior to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, but then the coronavirus pandemic hit. Now, we sent our children home to learn remotely. And I have a daughter who is uh, fourth grade at a Cleveland Municipal School District school. And I saw that, you know, to their credit, they have a fairly robust program of, they have their classrooms on Zoom, they have book club. Um, and she also gets a, a reading packet every week, but all of it refers to um, refers you back to the internet. So when my wife and I are sitting with her, helping her and going over this, you know, we've experienced, of course, as every family, you know, there's some app you have to download or it's not mm -hmm. like, you know, we get there, but there's little things you have to do. But what about those kids in our school system that do not have internet access? I, I spoke with, I spoke with Eric Gordon. He estimates about 12,000 scholars of the Cleveland Municipal School District don't have internet access. How is that okay? How is this not the time where we say we need to clear our desks and this has to be our main priority? We can't continue talking about this. We can't continue, you know, talking around the issue. We have to solve this. So I want to I want to just point out that uh, Eric Gordon, CEO of the Cleveland Metro School District, is going to join us for a Friday forum a week from this Friday. Um, so in about 10 days or so. And uh, to speak specifically to that issue, Council President Kelly, what can be done right now? Twelve thousand scholars. That's roughly a third of the of the students in the Cleveland Metro School District. Um, 
what are you proposing be done immediately? So the immediate, we have to take a short-term and a long-term um, approach to this. Because of the crisis, there is a, a short-term solution that the district has put together, has patched together with different providers, um, PCs for People, Sprint, and they're going to—they believe that they're at a point now where they can provide hotspots for those kids to get us through this crisis. But mm -hmm. that's not a long-term solution. We have to think long-term. So I have a, a few things that I'd like that I propose as solutions because while the young scholars have to be our first priority. Um, you know, Belt Magazine put out an article um, uh, within the past year, which estimated that, that over 50% of our citizens don't have broadband access. Um, Connector Community supported that, that figure, and um, we have an internet connection problem. We have a digital divide in Cleveland. So mm -hmm. as much as we have to prioritize the scholars, we also have to remember that we sent home most of our workforce to work from home. Mm -hmm. Well, if they don't have the tools they need to succeed, how do we expect them to continue to thrive in this economy? So in terms of what do we do going forward, the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that this, is, that this problem has to be solved now and look to models that have worked. There are solutions to the digital divide that communities have taken. You can look to you know, Chattanooga, Tennessee. You can look to uh, Minneapolis. You can look at Riverside, California. You can look at the city of Fairlawn. And in Cleveland, the old Brooklyn community deployed a free neighborhood Wi-Fi system mm -hmm. um, about eight years ago. And it's currently in the midst of an upgrade right now. And when you look at what works, there may not be like a perfect model. But if you take Old Brooklyn Connected, for example, I know... Mm -hmm what types of coalitions need to be built. I know that it's that it's not going to be a cheap problem. We have to, you know, dedicate the resources. We have to find, we have to work with the people that know how to deploy these types of systems. There's big system-wide things. Just in, old, just in Old Brooklyn, when we were deploying Old Brooklyn Connected, you know, we had to build a coalition of the Community Development Corporation. Uh, we had to build, build a coalition with the city. We had to build a coalition with the provider community. And when we first started, it was during the last stimulus round. And we we're fortunate that Connector Community was able to provide training in Estbrook Recreation Center, in the South Brooklyn Branch of the Library, in the CDC. It takes that kind of community building to deploy a system like this. Um, the nonprofit Digital C has a model that I believe we should take a very serious look at and make and see if that's something that we can commit to, to bring broadband access to all of our citizens. But mm -hmm. there are there are at least four models that I'm aware of that could work in the city of Cleveland. We have to assess our assets and we have to, you know, the fact that we own the, when I say we, Cleveland Public Power owns the polls in Cleveland. Um, mm -hmm. Might seem like a boring detail, but that's the, that's runs the lines that all of our technology runs on it, unless you're in one of the communities where it's buried. Seems to me, if you own the poles, you can hang what you want from the poles, and mm -hmm. then you can get Wi-Fi through the entire city if you if you so desired, and if the resources were available. Is that what you're proposing? That is one of the proposals. Um, I I want to take a I want to take a deep dive and really see the feasibility of what Digital C is proposing. But I mm -hmm. think that we need to get to a point where we, as a community, take more ownership of this issue and not rely 
on, on what currently exists. If we just rely on what currently exists, we're not going to get there. We're not going to solve the problem. Mr. President Kim Kelly, um, you and I both know that uh, when Mayor Jackson took office shortly after that, he proposed a vision, a Cleveland, a vision for Cleveland 2020, which at that time in 2005 seemed like an incredibly long way off. And part of that vision was to include Wi-Fi, free Wi-Fi across the entire city. It's 15 years later, that hasn't happened. Why will it happen now? So the reason, while that was an ambitious goal, we have learned a tremendous amount about systems that work. The system that was that was popular at the time or, or seemed to be the solution at the time um, failed and the company that, that deployed it went to bankruptcy and it caused the city of Philadelphia a lot of problems. We've learned that purely public systems don't work. We learned that purely private systems don't work. And we've, if you look at the models that do succeed across the country and in Fairlawn and in Cleveland, Ohio, it's a coalition that succeeds. It's, it's bringing the, the different sectors that the, the nonprofit community, the municipal community, the wireless community, bringing people together. It can succeed now because it has to. Um, 15 years ago, it wasn't as important. In 2005, it wasn't as important that we be learning remotely. We have now mandated that our children go home. We have now mandated that our workforce go home. That's why it has to succeed now. And I think that if you look at what Minneapolis did, if you look at some of these other communities, even if you look at what we did in Old Brooklyn, even if that were something that were deployed citywide, we'd be in a much, although it's imperfect, we'd be in a much better place than we are right now. Indeed. Um, does the mayor have your backing on this? Or does, do you have the mayor's backing rather? You know, we haven't had a detailed discussion, but I'm sure that, um, that, that we, we always come to a good mutual understanding of what's best in the best interest of the city of Cleveland. Okay, I know you have some other um, ideas too regarding workforce development and addressing social determinants of health. Uh, I wanna give you a chance to discuss those. Sure. So we, we, if you talk about the digital divide and how devastating it is for K-8, and then the additional approximately um, 53,000 households in Cleveland that don't have a, an internet connection, so that's one part of what's holding us back workforce-wise. But now we're at a point where if before the coronavirus, workforce and the misalignment of, of qualified workers and available jobs was the biggest crisis facing our economy, which I think it was, I think right now that is amplified it. Now it is, a, it is an absolute crisis because the jobs that people come back to, jobs that people are hoping to come back to, we don't know what they are. And a lot of entry level positions are not going to be there. And I think it's time that we really look at this issue of, of misalignment. Just in um, late in 2019, um, Team Neo put out their, their, their document about aligning opportunities. And again, there are plenty of available jobs in information technology, in manufacturing, in healthcare, in the skilled trades. The problem is there's a there's a misalignment of the of the workers that can fill those. And I think we have to have a starting point here. And this is my starting point. How can we accept the notion that we live in a community where there are thousands of open jobs and there are thousands of unemployed and unemployed people in the same community? To me, you just that is not a sustainable way to go forward. And I believe that if we're looking at the long-term success of our economy, A, we need to deal with digital divide, and we need to make sure that we are training people for the jobs that are available. And we need to get people into those jobs. And I think this is the time where, again, it was a problem 
before coronavirus. It's, I believe it's gonna be a crisis. And these two things I think are key building blocks of our success in the long-term economy. Council President Kelly, when you talk about uh, getting people into those jobs, you also have to get people to those jobs. And transit is uh, a, a, an issue that comes back again and again with respect to um, job access and access to opportunity. What are you proposing with respect to, to that? So let me just uh, throw another one in. In addition to, we need to A, get people trained for the jobs. We need to make that match. But the two things that are most frequently cited as additional barriers mm -hmm. are transportation and childcare. Mm -hmm. We need to look at the, at the whole picture of how we do this. Um, first, I mean, we have to get to a point where the where we have the trained workforce for these jobs. But what I have found, um, just for example, um, MCPC, who's a local technology company. Um, they purchased a, a property in, in, in the community that I represent. And working with MCPC and the Columbia Municipal School District, Eric Gordon, were able to devise a program where children could learn technology, kids from Rhodes High School, they would take kids out of Rhodes High School and give them training and give them pay, you know, paid work to do this because they recognize that they have a workforce program that as a technology company, they have a workforce problem that they need to solve. And I think the realization that it's not gonna just be government that, that solves this, that it's gotta be industry as well, that because it's not just that people need work, it's that industry needs workers, that we have to come up with a solution to deal with transportation and childcare. And I believe that needs to be either some portion of their pay built into the, the pay of the workers. We've got to continue to work with RTA to make sure that routes are available to where the jobs are. And we need to make sure that, that people can provide for their children while they're at work. So we, we, it's, it's not just transportation, it's transportation and childcare, but it's getting the workforce ready. It's got to be the first step, but we have to always be looking at those additional barriers once we solve that issue. Uh, in addition to getting the workforce ready, you your piece on Medium that you posted yesterday, and there's a, a link to that piece in both our Twitter feeds and online at cityclub.org, um, you mentioned addressing social determinants of health. What do you have in mind specifically? This, these are these are longstanding issues, sir. Yes. And before uh, I, I'm going to answer, give me one second to go back to uh, workforce. Certainly. We have to really just acknowledge how just how underfunded public transportation is. And that's going to be an ongoing discussion. It's going to be an ongoing, you know, political issue with the state. Public transportation is underfunded. We can't be in a, in a situation where rates keep being increased and fares decreased and expect ridership to increase. So I just wanted to put a plug in for the, the necessity of public transportation. On health outcome disparities, again, this is not something that didn't exist before coronavirus. This is something that has been exacerbated or really just shined a light, or, or this is yet another um, example of health outcomes in the city of Cleveland that are largely determined by zip code. And that is something that we, we shouldn't have tolerated before and we absolutely can't tolerate it now. And if, we're took, if the theme of our conversation is the long-term health of our economy, you can't have a healthy economy when you have these types of disparities within 
your within your own community. And uh, this, you know, I worked on these issues for years when I was a social worker before before I went to law school. Um, you know, back in the days when I was doing meals at Westside Catholic Center. But as we go forward, as we as a community try to solve this problem, we need to look beyond the healthcare systems and we need to take more of a community-wide approach to health. If you look at all the literature that discusses health outcome disparities and it points to the social determinants of health, you know, the ones that, that are in all of the in all the literature, it's employment, it's income, it's your neighborhood, it's your housing, which is one reason that we we dealt with housing insecurity on council. You know, it, it's education, it's food security, your, it's your community, your social interactions. And we need to take a community-based approach to these disparities. And what I would suggest, Dan, as a, as a model for the city moving forward that we could that we could scale up with the whole city is um, the Old Brooklyn Community Development Corporation um, took, at the time, was a unique approach to community development. And that's, they were going to put they're going to move beyond bricks and mortar, you know, housing and business assistance and put public health as a goal of community development. Mm -hmm. and they didn't just put it on their annual report. They hired staff that was going to focus on the health of the community. We did, when I say we, I mean, in cooperation with Old Brooklyn Community Development Corporation, did a community health needs assessment where mm -hmm. we did a community-wide survey of what the needs are. And we identified problems in access to fresh food. We identified problems in the, the walkability of the neighborhood, the public transportation, people's schools, people's jobs, people's safety. These things all come together to make up these disparities. And we can't just point to one thing. We can't point to the health system. We can't point to one element that is going to change these outcomes. We have to take a, a full community-based look at this. And if you look at what happened, just my neighborhood example with Old Brooklyn Community Development Corporation, you know, from this sprung a farmer's market. You know, from this sprung um, a, the Development Corporation hired a liaison, you know, for the schools and an outreach worker. And, you know, we made sure that we renovated our parks so that everybody in Old Brooklyn was, with, was within a 10-minute walk to the parks. These are the kinds of things that we can scale up. And as your guest from uh, last week, um, Dr. Dr. Ray mentioned that solving this has to be something that happens at the neighborhood level. It's got to be something he mentioned, you know, um, accessing the reach of the ministers and the faith community there. We have to we have to bring everybody together on this. We need to bring the faith community. We need to bring the community development corporations together. We need to bring government. We need to bring the, the health systems. There's nobody that can take a pass on this because there's no one element that can solve it, but without any one of these elements, it can fail. So this is something that, that if we are going to deal with this, we need to take a community health model and apply that in every neighborhood. Uh, Council President Kelly, when we uh, when you talk about the community health models and you talk about public health outcomes, one of the um, two two of the big issues that we've been facing as a community have to do with infant mortality in the Black community, specifically a disproportionate impact on African American mothers and their children, and also lead poisoning throughout our community. Um, can you speak specifically about any? Um, these feel to me as foundational issues when it comes to a, an economically just future and a socially just future. Um, can you speak about any progress we've made thus far on either of those issues? And when the public health department is already 
focused or burdened with doing contact tracing on COVID, will they be able to continue any work that they began on lead poisoning? Short answer is yes. And um, I agree, those are, those are issues that really kind of test the soul of the community. If you, you know, we talk about infant mortality, it becomes, it becomes a clinical term. And unless you really think that this is about babies dying before their first birthday, how is it that in the healthcare cap of the world, this healthcare system that reacted so marvelously to, to COVID-19, how mm. can we have it that babies are dying at a disproportionate rate before their first birthday? And when, when I was council president, that was one of the first initiatives that I considered a, a clear your desk moment. Um, this isn't a budget issue. This isn't just about whether somebody has health insurance. And it, it took you know, a good amount of time to build a coalition. And we built a coalition of the, of the philanthropic community, the, the faith community, the hospital community, the, um, the nonprofit healthcare, the, all of the departments of health. And there was a lot of good people doing a lot of very good things for this crisis of infant mortality. We just weren't doing them in a coordinated manner or at the scale that it took to solve the problem. And that's why First Year Cleveland was formed. It was formed out of this coalition. Mm -hmm. And the work that First Year Cleveland's doing is tremendous. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it is making an impact on the number of babies that die before their first birthday. It is, we, we are making an impact. And I, I, had I known that, I would have brought the exact numbers because I don't want to misquote it because um, the work they're doing is so great. And because this community coalition formed, um, although the health department, the, the public health departments might be busy right now, there's a whole network of, of community providers and activists in First Year Cleveland that are going to get this work done. And mm -hmm. it's something that have to be done. But what's, what I find, what I, you know, for me personally, what really, I think the most valuable part of that was I went into, and I think a lot of people went into that conversation with some preconceived notions of why we were experiencing this problem. Women weren't getting prenatal care. Um, they were showing up in the emergency room to deliver their babies. They were teenagers. Um, and what we learned was shocking, um, but it was something that had to be learned. When you stripped out the numbers and you looked at the, the women who have lost children, the families that have lost children, you can take away the, the issue of poverty, the issue of whether they got prenatal care, whether they were educated, whether they had health insurance. And what we found is that regardless of your circumstance, a middle-class black woman who is employed and has insurance through her employer still has a worse birth outcome than a white woman who does not, who is not employed, who does not seek prenatal care. The numbers were painful. The numbers were, had to be seen. But knowing that that result happens, and by the way, this doesn't happen in any other country. This is a uniquely American problem that, that we lose black babies at a sadly disproportionate rate compared to Caucasians. And this is where you just have to stop and say, I, whatever else happens, that can't be okay with anybody. But it really highlighted this disparity um, for me in terms of, and, and, I, and I knew it, but this put the numbers like right painfully in front of me of just how, how severe this problem was. Um, and if you providing support, enough support to the agencies who are, who are addressing this problem? Yes, um, and that's, we, thus far we are, but we can never take our eye off the ball. Um, 
there's funding coming from a number of, of sources right now, but we need to, we were fortunate to get a grant from a, a Medicaid grant, but we are really going to need, this can't just be a government program. This has to be something that's supported by the philanthropic community. This has to continue to be supported by the healthcare system, the business mm -hmm. community, government. First Year Cleveland was born of a coalition. It wasn't a law. It wasn't like an act of the health department. It was something that, that we did together. So it is currently funded properly. It needs mm -hmm. to continue until we solve this, this awful problem. If you have a question for Council President Kevin Kelly, you can text it to 330-541-5794, or you can tweet it at the City Club, and we'll work it in to the second half of the program. Um, and as we're about to move to that, uh, to the Q&A with the audience, Kevin Kelly, I want to ask you about um, coming back to workforce development. Um, yes. In addition to jobs, jobs are only as good as the pay that comes with them. Yes. Um, City Council and the City of Cleveland um, blocked a citizen-led effort to create a $15 an hour minimum wage in the City of Cleveland. I want to give you a chance to, I'd like to ask you about that, about why you blocked that at the time, how you feel about it now, and what you think the future is. Yes. So Cleveland was the first and only city really in Northeast Ohio that started a living wage ordinance. Uh, we had a living wage ordinance long before any other community uh, moved forward. I am very supportive of an increase in the minimum wage. There is currently a proposal to that's going to be on the statewide ballot to raise the minimum wage to just over $13 an hour, which I'm very supportive of. Um, I think that our, our lower income workers need to get a raise. I think that they're, they're, they're entitled to more. And to the extent that we talked about, um, you know, the, the market would, would correct in a pre-COVID world where you know, there were, you know, the unemployment numbers at least were were solid. We're, that's not going to be the case. We need to make sure we're taking care of workers. And I'm going to be very supportive of the statewide initiative um, when it when it comes to the ballot. Okay, let's move to questions from the community. Again, you can text them to 330-541-5794, the number right there on the bottom of the screen. And you can also tweet them at the City Club. And Council President Kelly, as you know, it's a City Club forum, so you could be asked anything. It's not, it's like a, a Reddit, ask me anything. It's not just about uh, the stuff you've been talking about. That's what I signed uh, up for. Yeah. Fox 8 News reported yesterday that the city of Cleveland is no longer recycling and is instead sending all recycling to the landfill. Is that true? And will city council pursue this issue and make it right because sustainability is so important to Cleveland's future? Um, I can't comment on the truthfulness of the story because I haven't seen it. Um, but what we as a community do need to be ready for is the fact that recycling is different than when it started, where the value of the recycled goods has diminished tremendously. So there was a point when we started our recycling program where we people would pay uh, or companies would pay us to take our recycling. And now we're when this contract is over, we're probably gonna have to pay people to take it. And we have another, we have a community education issue as well. Only about 15% of Clevelanders properly recycle. Um, the stream has got to be clean. The, the recycled goods, because, you know, so much of it is being rejected now, has the stream's got to be clean. You can't mix any garbage in with it once it gets polluted. So I think that the answer to that question would be, we really need to take a, a look at what the future of recycling, what the future of sustainability is going to be. Um, and, you know, 
as, as we go through this, we got to like look at bigger issues. Like what is the, you know, the, 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 the health of Lake Erie, the, you know, the, the harmful algae blooms that we're dealing with. Uh, there's, there's a tremendous amount of, of things that are coming, but as for recycling, we all have to be ready to come up with a different solution that we've been, what we've been used to. Does that include a, uh, the plastic bag ban, assuming that we, you know, can, can avoid using plastic bags after the COVID-19 crisis? Does that include uh, using, you know, using less across the board for all of us? Using less is the only real solution that, that works. Um, and we have to, we have to educate, we have to train ourselves to use less. Um, you know, as for plastic bags, that, you know, that's another issue where our last meeting uh, before we, before we, March 23rd, I believe. March 23rd. We introduced a, an ordinance for the use of plastic bags, but mm -hmm. we did so in cooperation with Environmental Health Watch. We did so in cooperation with the grocery, the grocery stores. We did so in, we, we built a coalition to come up with what was the right thing that would achieve the goal, which is it's not just plastic bags, Dan, it's single use. Mm -hmm. And came up with a plan that would reduce single use bags in grocery stores, but then we need to turn to, you know, the, the bigger issues are, you know, how long are we going to keep using plastic bottles? How long are we going to continue to consume in a way that is not sustainable? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so looking over here at other questions, it, speaking of your final March 23rd meeting, the, the last March 23rd meeting, if city council is going to digital meetings to comply with social distancing, will public comment be available at either committee hearings or council hearings? And um, also related to that, since you haven't met since March 23rd, what have you guys been up to? Okay. So let me, let me start with, uh, we are, we're testing a digital platform now. Um, I believe that we're going to be ready to go with our meeting with, uh, with virtual meetings next week. They will be live streamed on channel 20. They'll be live streamed on our website. Um, and I would encourage anybody who has a, uh, an, an issue, you know, beforehand to, to reach out to the chair of the committee and, 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 and put their issue forward. As far as what we've been doing, um, I'm, I'm glad somebody asked because I've really been um, just inspired by a lot of the work of my colleagues in terms of organizing food drives, um, getting, you know, working with the churches, getting food distributed. Councilwoman Jasmine Santana has done a great job at this, Councilman Cleveland. I know uh, Councilman Slife worked with all the West Park churches to get things done. Uh, Councilman Bashir, I mean, I, I can name everybody um, because everybody's doing so much within the community to really try to, to deal with this. And it's mostly, it's mostly um, dealing with people that are, are, are with isolation. Another thing we've been doing is we've been promoting a program of the Cleveland Department of Aging, which is the care calls and making sure that, that there's a senior that is alone and needs, is isolated and, and needs a check-in call. They can sign up for these Cleveland care calls and they will get a call to make to, just to check on their well-being and make sure that they're okay. But it's really a neighbors helping neighbors, you know, helping your community. But the Cleveland care calls is really one of the most effective things that we can do. Uh, mm -hmm. We've all also worked to do the kind of like the reverse 911 
where there'll be a robocall if there's any additional information that needs to be done. So in terms of like preparing for, and what I would tell the questioner is that, you know, what happens in the meetings is only a small portion of, of what we actually do. Most of what happens is in the ward. Most of what happens is, you know, preparing for the legislation because we know we're going to go back and there's going to be a stack of legislation waiting for us. Well, we're currently talking about that and figuring out what that's going to look like, what's needed. So, you know, people are working, um, even though this work environment is it's, it's different for everybody, including us. You can tweet your questions at the City Club or text them to 330-541-5794. Here's another for you. A tenet of inclusivity is democracy and citizens have the right to use their voice to fight for change. If today you're saying that we should come out of this being more inclusive, can you explain your record against blocking citizen-led initiatives? I'm not sure what the what the questioner is asking because I have never I don't have the power to block I think they're probably I think that this is referring to the $15 an hour minimum wage initiative that we spoke of earlier. And there was another citizen led initiative about size of council. Um, those would be two that I can think of anyway. And if you if you go through the if whatever initiative that you can come up with, the petitioners would do that on their own. I don't have the power to to not do that. And I, I encourage everybody who believes that they are not. Um, they're not receiving the representation from the government to do ballot initiatives, to reach out. I think it's an important part of our democracy. And ultimately, though, if you look at any example that, that you just mentioned, and I can mention some more, but I'm sure we want to move on. I don't have the ability to take something off the ballot. The petition committee in each event did so themselves. Okay. Uh, related to that, will council move forward with a review of the size of council? Um, we have recently, this question has been asked mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it's been withdrawn from the ballot. I am very happy. I'm very confident that the one representative right now, it's one representative for 25,000 people. And that was voted on by the citizens of the city of Cleveland, um, recently, um, as recently goes in these votes, 2009, I believe. Mm -hmm. But what I think is important is, um, Bob Higgs from Cleveland.com did an analysis of the historical representation levels of the mm -hmm. city of Cleveland, you know, dating back to right after the time when we left the city manager meeting. And when that happened, um, yeah, and what, what happened was, what, what he determined was that somehow, whether it was intentional or not, we've always had about one representative per 25,000. We had 900 plus thousand people, we had 33 council members, you know, in 1981, we reduced to 21. And at that point, it readjusted to about one to 25,000. And after that, you know, we, we then went to 19 and then 17 until we passed this current charter uh, amendment that, that puts in our charter one representative for approximately 25,000. But what I would say on that question that is the more important point and was, you know, the question that came out of this recent, you know, threat to take away representation is that that local representation is extremely important. Um, in the city of Cleveland, your council person is your voice. Uh, I probably told you more examples than you wanna hear about what happens in old Brooklyn, but you need somebody who whose job it is, is to make sure that that park project gets done. You need, you need somebody that makes sure that if somebody's not getting a response for their, their street cleaning, that their council person is the person to go to. And mm -hmm. the concept of local democracy is, 
that needs to be the value that we have going forward, not like an arbitrary number that 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 people might choose. The question I'm is maybe sure that we already know this, the answer to this, but how many council members are there currently? There are currently 17 council members. So that would be um, that would suggest that there's over 400,000 people in the city of Cleveland. And the last I heard, we were under 400,000. Yes. And we will determine based on this census what the new number is. But the thing you have to keep in mind is that it's always got to be an odd number. So we need to lose two. Why do we have to lose two? You guys almost always vote unanimously. Things could happen. We've had, we've, I've been witness to a number of close votes in my time. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. So it has to be an odd number. Um, an odd number. And, I, and again, I, I believe that local democracy is important. Local representation is important. And the one to 25 ratio is what the people said they wanted. And it's been part of our history um, for a very long time. So there's a chance. So, so the answer is yes, then, depending yeah. on the outcome of the census. The census is looking at our number. We are going to do what the census dictates in terms of what the population city of Cleveland is. Very interesting. Um, okay, this question uh, is fairly general, but I think worth putting to you. Council President Kelly agrees the pandemic has highlighted some of the most significant social crises in our region. What commitment will you make to Clevelanders who lack basic needs, water, food, and shelter? As soon as this pandemic hit. One of the first things that the city did was we suspended um, cutoffs from Clinton Public Power and Clinton Division of Water. Not only did we do that, the city of Cleveland went back and restored service for those that have been cut off for non-pay during this crisis. Um, I think the city has taken its responsibility as stewards of these public utilities very seriously um, I think if you look at what's what's happened with the Department of Aging, with our our local church communities, the CDCs, in terms of providing food and our our annual support for the Cleveland Food Bank, I think that we have responded to this, and I'm very proud of how Cleveland has responded in those areas. And um, can I just that, one more? Can I, that mean that nobody is currently cut off. That all access all all electric and, and water access, utility access has been restored or only if they were cut off during the pandemic? Um, anybody who requested service be restored was restored. So if you were unable to pay in January and your yeah. service was cut off and you requested yeah. it to be returned today, it would be returned? Yes. Okay, that's can great. I, can I just just put something else on sure. the need that, that we are dealing with in council is We've heard about what might happen afterwards in terms of like what will happen with evictions, what will happen with people that are facing housing insecurity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is something that we took very seriously before we before the pandemic in terms of trying to provide trying to provide stability in housing and trying to deal with housing instability. Mm -hmm. And we're one of the first communities in the nation to provide right to counsel for low income defendants that are facing eviction. Mm -hmm. and while we didn't see it, we didn't see this pandemic coming when this coalition was formed to do this. I think it's more important than ever that that is now in place, and we're working with Legal Aid, and we're working with United Way, and we're working with landlord communities, and we are we we put together a very good program. And I think that is going to do a lot to stabilize the housing market, to keep people from being evicted in the in the wake of the COVID nineteen pandemic.
That legislation was set to take effect in June. Is that correct? July 1, it goes live. July 1, it goes live, and it's still going to go live July 1. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. The, the way it was set up was that um, because of the, you know, this is a big sea change, and United Way Legal Aid needed to train attorneys uh, for this particular discipline and, and have enough attorneys that could do the work. So we were in the setup phase. We passed it so that the first half of this year would be doing the back office, getting the bug, getting the training done, making sure that we have attorneys that are ready to do the work. So come come July 1, we're ready to go. I mean, we are, this is, a, this is an important thing for the city of Cleveland. And I think it's an example of how we are going to lead the nation when it comes to what did you do after COVID-19? How did you take care of your people? How did you provide after this event? If this were an actual city club forum, you and I would be looking around the audience right now to see right. if our friends from Legal Aid could verify and make sure they're nodding their heads. And yeah. if them are with us today, I hope that they can send a tweet to verify that, in fact, we are on track for a July 1 rollout of that very important piece of legislation. Um, the uh, the Another question here, how can city council fund investments in digital infrastructure, transportation and health disparities when the city faces a future fiscal shock? due to the drop in income taxes? The city of Cleveland, and I've I'm, I'm the, been the chair of finance committee since um, 2014, and um, I can say that we have budgeted very responsibly. Um, just this past year, we, we brought forward a, a $43 million balance of unencumbered cash. We have a rainy day fund. But going back to when I you know, was new on council and we had the first or the, the most recent recession, those were very difficult days. And you never wanna be an elected official. You never wanna be a person that has to face somebody that's, that's faced a layoff. Um, you're, you're talking about a family's income. You're talking about putting food on the table. You're talking about how, how they pay their mortgage and feed their kids. I mean, it's, a, it's something we don't wanna go through. Um, since that time, we have budgeted very responsibly, not to mention right after we're coming out of the, or as we're trying to claw out of the first recession, the local government fund was slashed by the state of Ohio, putting enormous pressure on me. Um, and as we go forward, we had always looked at budgeting responsibly, trying to get to a structurally balanced budget so that we weren't always trying to pull rabbits out of hats to make the budget balance for, for a particular year or, or have carryover. Um, we recently did that. We recently got to a point where our budgets were, were sustaining, they're stable, um, they're structurally balanced, where we weren't needing some event to happen to, to save us. We, mm -hmm. we budgeted for the year. And why I think this is so important is obviously when these things happen, there's always people that will say, you know, why don't you hire another police class? Why don't you do this, that? But we took it, took a purposeful position of budgeting for a recession. So now cities that planned well are gonna be in a whole lot better position than those that are just going to respond to an emergency. So I'm very, I, I feel very good about, and I can't promise everything, and I don't know exactly what this hit is gonna to be to the budget, but it's gonna be significant, but we budgeted in such a way that we can, that I believe we can sustain something for this and continue our investments and continue to manage the city and run the city and provide the essential services that we're in business to do. Um, should the city be furloughing non-essential employees right now? At this point, uh, we have budgeted in such a way that that's not necessary. I can't make any promises going forward, but we haven't had any layoffs. We haven't had any furloughs and we're really trying to keep, you know, keep people employed because 
uh, again, if you're when you're furloughed, when you lay people off, it's a traumatic event, and even you, you may call them non-essential, but people are working from home. People are doing their jobs. People are coming in on the days that city hall is that, that city hall is open. And we got to remember, you know, these are these are people. You talk about you know numbers that were furloughed. They're not statistics. These are people that are relying on income to feed their families, to put food on the table. And we're going to do everything we can to not do furloughs or layoffs, but I can't make any guarantees. You can tweet questions for Council President Kevin Kelly to at the City Club or text them to 330-541-5794. This question came in yesterday, Council President, about demographic data on COVID-19 um, cases and deaths inside the city of Cleveland. There hasn't been demographic data released. Why not and will that change? So there has been some that, that's been released and I would refer you to the Department of Health website and it's, uh, it's one of the drop downs under, uh, on the right side of the screen by the map. Um, and what it'll tell you is that, to no surprise, this is affecting African-Americans more than it is Caucasians, which is consistent with other, other health disparities that we've had. But mm -hmm. I would just caution people that these numbers, and I don't know, I, I can't speak for anybody else in terms of why they weren't released earlier or differently, I would, you, we can't rely too much on them because there's approximately 20% of people that chose to not give that, that demographic information. So it's an imperfect, um, it's, it's an imperfect snapshot, but if you just look at it and if you look at what's happening across the country, you can make basic assumptions about what's happening. And sadly, to nobody's surprise, it is, it does have a disparate effect based on zip code. Indeed. Uh, this question, uh, coming back to broadband access um, from a, a viewer, I agree there's a sense of urgency and relevance. What are the free, the four free Wi-Fi models that you spoke of from which we can learn? You spoke about Chattanooga, Tennessee. Okay. Yes, they're not free. Yeah. And just, just a free systems have challenges as well. Mm -hmm. um, there is, there is something to a paid model. So I'm not necessarily having it free, but let me just tell it to you about a few that I know that I'm familiar with. Chattanooga, Tennessee is a great example for us because they provided broadband access to all of their citizens through their electric utility. Uh, their electric utility is like our water in terms of the fact that it's every citizen of the city plus the county. It's a very broad reach. So they were able to add that. And what they did in, in Chattanooga, you know, they first, you know, offered up to a gig and nobody really needed that much at the time. So they scaled the model down to 100 megs and 75 megs. What's happened is that they are now able to provide affordable broadband to every citizen. And I don't know the number, but this utility also puts $12 million back in the general fund, you know, from operations of what it, of what it does. Um, Minneapolis deployed a citywide um, infrastructure, uh, technology infrastructure program, and their anchor tenant was public safety. So the public safety is who paid, who was really the main user of this, but because Wi-Fi and internet connectivity uses a relatively lower amount of, of bandwidth, they were able to run a, a broadband program off of, off of this model. Um, Riverside, California, I, I believe their, their program is free. And what they have done is, is similar to Brooklyn is they've done a citywide Wi-Fi um, deployment. And the fourth one is in old Brooklyn, 
where we, we built the coalition and we're in the middle of an upgrade right now because the stuff gets old and when people start to use it, the bandwidth goes down. We've, we've purchased more bandwidth. We have um, done outreach. We did a, the Community Development Corporation is doing outreach right now to identify any family that's struggling to get a, a signal to make sure that every family in Old Brooklyn has this, this Ward 13 has this access. But those are the four models, and there's more, by the way. But, but with that, and then with the work that Digital C is doing, I think there's enough um, information where we can come up with a solution for Cleveland. But those are the four I was referring to. Thank you. Another question here, with RTA reducing service by 15% and a future need to continue to be physically distant, what is the city doing to address mobility justice in ensuring people who bike and walk can do so safely? What about more complete streets? So complete and green streets are an important part of every every time that we do a road project. Um, it's got to be budgeted through city council. And that it, complete and green streets is part of, of the legislation. There are some streets where you can do, there is enough real estate where you can do bike lanes and you can you can have protected bike lanes. Most don't, most aren't wide enough, but there's a solution. Um, striping goes a long way. Just by striping a bike lane instead of a parking lane goes a long way. There are many solutions and there is a Cleveland 2020 bike plan that is, you know, we're coming, we're, gonna, we're refreshing that. Um, but if you, if you look at some of our main thoroughfares, there is bike access, but I think that we need to take a different look now um, with social distancing and make sure that more streets have bike lanes, the, the concept of a protected bike lane is kind of the gold standard for how we do this, but that really does take a lot of real estate. You've got to separate the lane. You've got to have some protection from traffic. And there's not a lot of streets that are wide enough to do that, but there's a few that are on the board. And, and again, this is just something where we need to be smart about it and make the most out of this because the, the opportunity to make change is right now. Mm -hmm. I want to push back on the idea that there aren't a lot of streets that are wide enough. I mean, the, the, if you look at some of the main thoroughfares on the east side that I drive in a lot on on my way back and forth to work, you've got uh, Superior, Chester, Carnegie, all of which have a huge amounts of real estate devoted to traffic that uh, car auto traffic that is often not at capacity. Yeah. So what I would suggest is uh, there is a plan for Superior, and I would refer you to Council McCormick because he knows more, more about that. The Midway uh, Project. Was that? The Midway Project for the protected yeah. lanes along the middle. Yeah, protected lanes. So that is an issue, but we have to, whenever we do bike lanes, if it's a state route, we need to work with ODOT and they need to approve it. Um, so a lot of times when you're, when you're in this kind of battle with traffic engineers whose job is to move traffic and the, the cycling community whose job is to you know, their, their advocacy is to come up with a sustainable Cleveland and slow things down and make sure that those that choose bikes, it's really I think, a, I think they would say that their job is to remind traffic engineers that they are a part of traffic. I, I, and I would agree with that. Uh, I ride my bike. Uh, we have a, I've been, I've advocated in Ward 13 and we have a decent, not perfect, but a decent network of bike lanes. But no, I think it's very important. I think that that's, we need to look at bike lanes going forward in terms of what is our transportation going to look like post coronavirus. Um, related to that issue of streets is um, opening streets to more pedestrians and bicyclists and uh, and opening streets to restaurants. 
our restaurant industry locally has been decimated. And, um, and some cities are responding by opening streets to restaurants so that they can serve more customers while allowing them to be physically distant, as will be required this, undoubtedly this summer. When we're looking at the reopening decisions, my position on that is I'm going to listen to what the public health advocates suggest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, politicians aren't doctors and they shouldn't pretend that they are. Um, they should really listen and take the guidance. And in Ohio, we're very, Ohio and Cuyahoga County and Cleveland, we're fortunate to have a, a good public health community. Mm-hmm. Um, if those recommendations that are made by doctors um, indicate a, an amount of social distancing that would require more street access and that would require an active council, I'd be 100% supportive. Okay. Recently, the city of Cleveland issued an RFP for out-of-school time services. This allowed for local initiatives to move forward for funding. What is the city doing to address out-of-school activities for youth, and how will that be addressed during this pandemic as we enter summer break? So we have a we have a relationship with the Cleveland Municipal School District where we have a budget line item that goes to support extracurricular activities, that goes to support those events that happen outside of school. Right now, looking at what is happening in the in the Kelly household, and you know, my my daughter gets to her stuff pretty quick. I think there's going to be an increased need for that. We have to have more activities for kids, not less. And we have to. You know, what's going to be challenging is the things that we are used to as extracurricular activities. What are those? Can we do? Can we continue to do sports? Can we continue to do band? Can we continue to do those things that are kind of the kind of an important part of the school experience, or are we going to change a little bit? I don't know, but we really have to continue to focus on kids both in school and out of school and what they're doing because, you know, kids need, kids need socialization. Kids need their friends. Kids need to be active. So we, we can't not consider that when we're considering just their actual academic needs. All right. And this note from Twitter via Twitter from our friends at Legal Aid that they are on track to launch right to counsel in Cleveland on July 1, hiring and training staff now. Very exciting. Fantastic. Finally, Mr. Council President, I would not be a very good former journalist if I didn't ask you the following question. Um, A year from now, we will be in the midst of a race for the next mayor of the city of Cleveland. Um, Are you running? Well, right now um, we are in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, and I think it's the pandemic, our health department, everything's got to work together. I am going to focus on this. I'm not focused on anything other than coming back from this crisis at this point. Um, and I think that, you know, whatever happens in the future will happen in the future, but Frank Jackson is a mayor and I'm doing my best to be the best council president I can right now. Thank you very much. Council president, Kevin Kelly. We really appreciate your time today. Thanks for making yourself available. Thank you for reaching out to us and suggesting this. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate the time and uh, appreciate all the questions that your uh, viewers sent in. And if any more come, please let me know. We will. We certainly will. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us for this forum with with Council President Kevin Kelly, President of Cleveland City Council. City Club Virtual Forums are sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation, George Gunn Foundation, KeyBank, Nordson, and PNC, with additional support from Bank of America, the Shar and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation, and Thompson Hine and many more generous members, sponsors, and donors listed on our website at cityclub.org slash thank you. If you'd like to join them in supporting our work, you can make a contribution online at cityclub.org slash donate. Please consider joining us as a member. More information online. Please stay close in your hearts. If you can't stay close in person, 
stay strong, stay healthy. Our forum is now adjourned.